0: Star Wars 7 by 7 episode 2871. Today is pretty much the biggest day of the year in terms of Star Wars and birthdays because it is the birthday of the maker himself, George Lucas, and to celebrate, I am revisiting a conversation that I got to have a while back with the preeminent biographer of Lucas himself. Punch it. <laughs> Hey, Rebel Rouser. I'm Alan Voivod, and this is Star Wars 7x7, your daily dose of Star Wars joy, and thank you so much for joining me for it. So, on the auspicious occasion of George Lucas's 78th birthday, I thought, well, if we can't talk to the man himself, then let's talk to the next best person, which would be Brian J. Jones. So, here's his official biography note. It says, Brian J. Jones is the critically acclaimed best-selling biographer of some of the world's most iconic creative geniuses. His 2016 biography of Filmmaker George Lucas was the first comprehensive biography of the influential creator of Star Wars and Indiana Jones in nearly two decades. George Lucas A Life was praised as definitive by the New York Times, whiz Bang by people. <laughs> you can see the difference in editorial tone there. Uh, must read by Parade and deemed by Rolling Stone as the one biography for casual and diehard Star Wars fans alike. Prior to that, he had done biographies on Jim Henson and Washington Irving in the He also did a biography on Dr. Seuss, and now he's working on history of the U.S. Capitol, I gather. And I get to have a great, wide-ranging conversation with Brian during the time that he was promoting the release of the book, and that is what I'm going to be sharing with you today. So without further ado, here is part one of my conversation from 2016 with Brian J. Jones, author of George Lucas, A Life. Shh. Brian J. Jones, thank you so much for joining me on Star Wars 7x7. Alan, it is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let me ask you right off the bat, how long were you writing this book? And first of all, I guess I should say congratulations on the publication of George Lucas, A Life. This is a monumental work of biography. It's absolutely astounding.
1: Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, you know people I consider experts are enjoy- reading it and enjoying it as well. <laughs> um, it was a, it was a god. I started it, or we, you know, sort of throwing around the idea right after Jim Henson came out, so it was early 2014, um, and I was sort of working it nonstop ever since. And even I, and I didn't finish it until march of this year and my publisher who was so awesome i mean they were committed to getting it out this year so it was really on a fast track once it once the manuscript was delivered they really you know they they were committed to getting out in december and I even had another, you know, sort of bite at the apple in July after the first, you know, copy edits and everything came back, which is why I was able to include the most up to date information on his efforts to get his museum done, which still hasn't changed. It's still pending, but I was able to update even that. So it's been pretty much non stop for three years. Um, I did. I will never look behind the scenes here. I did miss, I wanna say, at least two or maybe three deadlines on it. Oh no because it just was such a huge project you know that you're trying to you know wrapping your arms around it um there was a point where i actually just dis- sort of despaired of ever finishing it um i i did i don't as of today i don't but i i have a, a day job as well and so i would you know get up in the morning and at you know six o'clock and then i would go off to work and then i would come home by you know six thirty in the evening sit down, write for maybe an hour, have dinner with my wife, and then write until about 2, 2.30 in the morning, and then do it all over again. So that was about the last six months of this as I was really trying to get it done. We're, we're really, uh, really a, a tough couple of months there. So, uh, But it uh, I, it was a, you know, ai am not going to complain because it was a, you know, terrific subject, a dream come true subject for someone who, you know, sort of, as you and I were talking before this all started, we're both sort of Star Wars Generation 1.0, both being, you know, about 7 and 10 years old when it first came out.
0: Right. And, you know, it puts me in mind of something that, um, when Michael Giacono was interviewed about the um, doing the score for Rogue One and he was asked to do it on the fly and only had about four and a half weeks to write the score and was a little nervous about Being able to take on that project, and a friend of his said to him, Come on, you've been writing this score since you were 10. You're making this. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So, was it similar? I mean, had you been, you know, you said you started this around, you know, 2014, that you'd been thinking about it, but is this something that you had been thinking about (laughs) for much longer in its own way?
1: Well, you know, it's one of those those projects that you just think, well, you know, that's uh, Washington Irving. Back, I'll go back to Washington Irving, one of my subjects earlier. Uh, you know, was asked in his lifetime, people kept saying, Irving, you should write a biography of George Washington, and Irving and Irving would say, no, 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 I stand in too great an awe of it. Uh, and that's sort of the way I was with with this subject. I never even really thought about it, but as I was writing Jim Henson, you know, you you get that great moment in Jim Henson when he's working on Labyrinth, and here comes George Lucas, and, you know, I'm getting ready to write that chapter, and I'm sort of rubbing my hands together with glee, and I'm like, oh good, I get to write George Lucas this chapter. You know, even when you're writing nonfiction, it's still, you know, you still have great characters. You treat them all as characters, and it's sort of like, you know, DC and Marvel Comics meeting each other. It's like this (laughs) big, epic event, Um, and so it was really cool, you know, to, to even, you know, touch Lucas' world, for, even for a second, um, and so, but you know, that was at that time. I thought, well, that's that's too good to could be true. Just think about, you know, keep, keep moving with Jim, and that's not worry about George. Um, so, but that, you know, that first little glimpse then at writing the Jim Henson book, talking about labyrinth, and think that's that's when you're like, oh, that's that would be a really fun project. Let's put that on the on the back burner for a little bit while we finish this one up, and then think about that once once uh, Jim Henson's finished.
0: And I love that comparison to even though you're writing a nonfiction book, you still have characters in it. And- and, you know, fiction writers often talk about characters kind of taking control of books and of chapters and scenes sometimes if they get a character that's really vibrant and really astounding. Like, did Lucas capture your imagination in that way? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's that's the one thing you really have to think about when you're writing,
1: bi- you know, nonfiction, but especially in biography, because... You have to live with this person very, very intimately for the entire time you're researching and writing and, you know, rewriting and editing and, you know, through the whole process. So it's one of those where if you find out early on that you think this is, you know, not somebody you want to live with, you you know, you need to think very carefully about that. You know, I don't think I could ever be a biographer of, you know, Charles Manson. And there is a biographer of Charles Manson, by the way. But uh, I don't think it could be. I don't think it could be me. Um <laughs> so you you know you really have to think about those things and i've been you know very lucky that as i've worked my way through these the, these stories of these guys um you know they're really interesting fascinating people and and I, you know i hate for us we're, as americans especially we're like we you know we talk about our political candidates would you sit down and have a beer with this person which makes me insane but mm-hmm. um, but you know but with these guys would you sit down and have a beer in a absolutely i mean they're all really interesting guys in different ways and have different superpowers and um you know it's just a really great bunch and lucas is a particularly great subject and it's really um spooky in a way to know as i'm doing this and talking about this like he's still out there you know i mean when i was writing jim and washington they're not they're not out there anymore uh so it's a little it's a little weird to realize you know here we're talking about him in third person but he's still out there
0: yeah so how does that change the process for you as a biographer having a living subject versus a dead subject to put it you know bluntly
1: well, you know, I mean, the, what, it, what it does structurally, and this this seems like a, like a flip answer and it's really not, is it, it means the end zone keeps moving as you're writing the book. Um, you, you know, it's like I, I have to keep a Google search going every single day because as I'm writing this, I want to be sure there's something that I'm not missing as I'm closing in on the end. Uh, so, you know, you have to be constantly researching as you're writing the book, which you didn't have to do with Washington Irving, of course, and Jim Henson even, because you know where the story ends. They're both dead. And so, you know, you, you can sort of get everything around you, and at the day before you write that last sentence, something's not going to change. This one, it could constantly have kept changing. So it makes it a little more challenging than that, because, again, your, your end zone is moving constantly as, you're, as you think you're closing in on it. Um, you know, the, the other thing that was <clears throat> a little... That, was, that made this book really cool, though, is, you know, he's out there, but in a way treating him almost, in, you know, treating him in third person and treating this almost as if he is dead. And I hate to be morbid, but, but, you know, really made this, I think, a much more dramatic, much more exciting, much more vibrant book because using archival sources rather than having someone sit and talk to you and reminisce about the way it was – when you get Lucas talking about Star Wars in 1976 and he's in Starlog magazine or he's being interviewed in the Kansas City Star and he's pissed off <laughs> because the studios aren't giving him the money. They've lost all their faith in him. You know, they abandoned him in the desert in his time of need and they wouldn't give him the money, you know, and he doesn't know how this is going to how it's going to turn out. And he's actually saying, you know, I I'm convinced this isn't going to make any money. I mean, he is in the dumpster. Um I think it's much more dramatic much more fun for us as readers to be there with him in the moment you know and, and we sort of know it's all going to be okay but he doesn't and I think that as you know a biographer and then I'm hoping as a reader that makes it that much more exciting uh, for everybody when you're actually in the here and now with the subject
0: oh yeah it's incredibly powerful stuff and very well written I, it just it is astounding to um, to read these and to pick out the details that you have and see how it all unfolds it's it's wonderful to know what it's going to be like but it's also just so informative for anyone in the middle of the creative process it's not just about him but it's also about you know any filmmaker any creative person who has gone into the desert and has found himself abandoned and yet you know, knowing that there is an oasis that isn't really an oasis. It's an actual water hole. <laughs> right, right.
1: You can yeah, surf yeah, from. Mean, I'm so glad to hear you say that, Alan, because what that tells me is that you get it. And that's one of the things that I love about the subjects I have is because, um, you know, I, as, as a kid, I, what a surprise. I was the nerdy kid who like wanted to watch every behind the scenes documentary on everything. <laughs> I mean, I remember watching the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark in, you know, on PBS when I was, you know, 14 or something. Right. Um, But I always love to know how everything works. But I love, especially with guys like Jim Henson and and George Lucas, like the creative process. Where do these things come from? What's it like sitting there in the room when they're spitballing around ideas? You know, I was comparing it at one point. It's like sitting in, you know, Abbey Road Studios trying to watch them, you know, put together this album they're working on. I I would love to know what's the view from the corner. And so that's one of the things I love to try to do is, is try to get everybody in. You know, put, put, that's, that's put us all in the room and find out, like, what's going on. I, I, I love the creative, writing about the creative process. I love reading about the creative process. So I'm glad that that's coming through.
0: Yeah, and so regarding that, too, one of the contrasts that you draw early on in the book deals with how UCLA Film School and USC Film School <laughs> differ in their approaches And how Lucas, you know, being at USC, USC's thing was to immerse their filmmakers in every aspect of the craft, as opposed to UCLA, where they, you said pretty much... Go make a movie! Yeah, exactly, and here's me. So, I mean, that seems to be very indicative of the creative process that Lucas ended up sort of adopting for his whole working life.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm so sorry, my email's dinging. Um, <laughs> okay. You know what? what what's, what's fascinating about him, and what I think that USC experience did for him, was you know, it did it. It does it does help you become sort of an expert at the filmmaking process. Helps you appreciate and understand all those steps. You know, a movie's not something that magically appears. Uh, it's not one of those things you say, I want to make a movie. Here's here's the plot of that movie and, and you know, let's, let's get it done. I mean, when you're at USC, you understand you need to know how to edit it. You need to know how to, how to, you know, you need to know how to dub in your sound. You need to know all those technical, you know, things that seem so boring to people. But it's the really critical part. You know, it's like saying, well, I'd love, I'd love to have a car. And, you know, somebody puts all the parts in front of you and say, there's every part you need to build your car. And you say, oh, well, but, but I just want to drive the car. You know, so that's sort of what that's sort of what UCLA is doing. They just, want, they just want to go drive the car. At USC, they lay all the parts out for them, and they say, "Now, you know, we're going to show you how to build the car." And for somebody like Lucas, who loved cars, that's sort of what they were doing. I mean, can you imagine? He sits down behind an editing machine for the first time. And uh, it sort of looks like sitting behind the wheel of a car. It's got two foot pedals to move the film forward and back. It's got a handbrake on it. You're looking through something almost like a windshield. It almost looks like a, you know, a visor. And uh, for somebody like Lucas, who, you know, already was very familiar with the, how things worked, the machinery is already out of his way, which really lets him concentrate on the editing side or, you know, actually the content of what he's doing. So USC, it's a really great mentality for a filmmaker to go in there. And when you're somebody like Lucas who wants to be an entire filmmaker, a whole filmmaker, that's the way to go, learning every step of the process, which is why I think Lucas is the one who, you know, who worried about things like my movie sounds terrible when it's in the theater. You know, how do we fix it in the theater? That's a jurisdiction he should have had no say over at all. And, you know, he's got Return of the Jedi in his hand, and he's like, Jedi, I'm mixing it. It sounds great in my mixing room. It sounds terrible in the theater. We need the theaters to change the way movies sound in their theater. I mean, the audacity of that, you know, that's the part of the process you should have no control over. Right. Um, but managed to get them to become THX certified. So, again, it goes back to learning every step of the process. I mean, Lucas knew how critical every step of the process was and why it was so important to try to control as much of every step of that process as you could.
0: And so control, of course, becomes a huge theme in the book, naturally. Yes. And yet there are certain people to whom Lucas seems willing to cede control to, like, for example, um, say Larry Kasdan on the scripting side of things, you know, John Dykstra and John Knoll with effects and so on and so forth. So where do you think he's comfortable with a line on control i mean do you think he's willing to seed some of this stuff because it's a necessary evil or because he has some mature realization about his limitations or something in between there
1: yeah, you know, I, I think it's sort of like Ronald Reagan's views with, you know, nuclear proliferation. Trust, but verify. <laughs> uh, which is the way he was. You know, he, he was trusting, for example, Dijkstra is a great example. He was really trusting Dykstra on the first Star Wars to get everything up and running and do those effects, and, you know, Dijkstra's in the United States. Lucas is in London. He didn't have time to be watching him. But when it becomes clear he's not getting the shots, they have that sort of, you know, bring the Mountain to Mohammed moment where Dykstra comes flying over to London and sort of gets read the riot act about, stop dithering around and dickering around, you know, inventing the machines and get me my damn shots. <laughs> um, and so, you know, when start when he finishes filming, Lucas finally has to go back and almost literally sit on Dijkstra's shoulder and and babysit him to be sure that they're getting everything done. So you know it, it's a it's a trust but verify. And in Dijkstra's situation Dijkstra made him crazy, but Dykstra is you know a genius of his own kind as well. So you, you do have to give that kind some leeway. And you know Dijkstra had the ability to lead men and inspire men the way Lucas couldn't quite do do it um, so he he had a tendency to really be able to pick the right people for these jobs as well um it was really hard for him to light fuse and stand back um you know he he did it for example for the most part with urban kirschner until he didn't so you know he he really knew you know Kirshner's great with direct with, with i'm sorry he's great with actors i'm not great with actors i'll let kirschner come in and do his whole thing and i'll just executive produce uh-huh yeah, that looked great on paper, uh, but but once you know once it gets going, Lucas comes over. He's worried about cost overruns, and he's bickering with Gary Kurtz about how much things are costing. So you know he's never really able to entirely let go. He's he's great at collaborating to a point.
0: Mm-hmm. And it calls to mind the idea of creative limitation about the the possibility that when you have constraints on what you can do, it actually ends up leading to you to more creative solutions and possibly ending up creating a better product. But Lucas doesn't seem to have that as a as a mantra or as something he's willing to accept.
1: Well, he, he kind of does on on Star Wars, it, you know, that, that is the point where he doesn't have the resources. And so he has to do things like, you know, go through that script and really pare it down, which, you know, I'm sure you've read the early versions. Like it really made that script a lot better when they had to scrap, you know, Leah being held captive on in Cloud City and let's put her on the Death Star so we don't have to build the Cloud City set now. And, yep. you know, so a lot of things that they did out of practicality and out of Fox being so cheap actually made that movie, you know, even greater. Uh, even better, even more exciting. But but you're right. Once he starts, really, you know, he's got he's got almost a almost a limitless budget. Uh, it does really make it, you know, much more e- much easier to you know sort of get it your way and do multiple takes and build whatever sets you need. Especially once you can do it digitally to get it to look the way you want to, regardless.
0: And then of course the special editions. Yes, the special editions. Which, incidentally, Um, um, for everybody listening, (laughs) Brian, you are a shot first person.
1: (laughs) I am definitely a shot first person.
0: As am I as well. (laughs) And so um, clearly, just because of the fact that you have a position staked on that, and definitively so, you are unquestionably a fan of the franchise. You mentioned earlier about Washington Irving and his being... You know, asked to do a biography of George Washington and him saying I can't do it because I stand too much in awe of George Washington can you talk a little bit about where you stood in awe of George Lucas and maybe go a little bit deeper than that uh, before you ever got involved <coughs> with this project? Sure, I mean,
1: you know, Lucas is one of those guys that, you know, especially people you're my age um, We, how often in your life had beforehand although we were a little young did you actually know who a director was and know what a director looked like and lucas is you know the guy who made directing cool in a way and uh you know so we always he was always there we always knew about lucas so lucas like jim henson was one of these guys that i always knew about was always in my life and star wars in particular i would read anything on star wars i read splinter of the mind's eye when mm-hmm. i was you know fifth grade when that came out anything star wars dynamite magazine when they had their big cover story on empire strikes back oh I yeah magazine so i could read that huh. so uh you know i mean i was i was a groupie to an extent that i would you know try to get my hands away. and i remember reading about raiders when it was first coming out and hearing you know lucas talking about this character of indiana jones who was you know really smart and you know was human and and i just remember being fascinated by this whole concept that they were laying out uh okay. even before i'd ever hit the theater so you know, he was one of those guys that that I always knew about. Always, uh, you know. It, it, again, I, I compare it to Jim Henson in that we didn't have we didn't have to wait for him to come along. He was already there for us the whole time, uh, and so it's I don't you know after having written. A biography of another iconic figure. It's it's a little less intimidating because you're at least used to the world, at least somewhat, but um, but it's still one of those. You know, I, I would say I did this with Jim, and I also did it with George Lucas. I would get up in the morning and look in the mirror, and I would say, "Do not mess this up."
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you set aside your whether it's your preconceived notions or the awe that you and respect that you have for George Lucas? How do you set that aside to write? Such a clear-eyed biography.
1: Well, you know, my one of my first real jobs uh, out of college, and I was an English major, which everybody said, "Oh, you have a degree in unemployment." <laughs> um, but I, um, you know, my one of my first real jobs was I was a legislative analyst in the U.S. in the U.S. Senate. And your job, as I found out much later, prepares you very well for biography because your boss will come to you and say, um, "There's a bill being introduced. Um, they want me to co-sponsor it. I would like to know if you think I need to go." So you go out and you get copies of the drafts and you talk to people on both sides of the aisle and you talk to the Library of Congress and say, can I get any research that's been done on issues related to this? And you bundle all this information together around you and you compile it and compress it and read it and and you write up. And an an analysis of this hopefully short uh, keeping things short as you can tell from the 580 page book in front of you (laughs) is uh, is not always easy for me but you know it but it turned out you know so you give that to your member and hope they can make an informed decision with you presenting them with the information and you know the end you will say you know I personally think you should sponsor this or not but trying to give them as much information as you can so they can make that decision themselves Um, and it was really good practice for biography and so let's let's take for example the things like Han shooting for oh no let's let's take the prequels for example because okay. people feel very strongly about the prequels I'm not a huge prequel fan okay um, yeah. but it's one of those things that what I, you know we all come to the table with our own um, opinions of these things and I don't think it's my place as a biographer to say here's what your opinion should be on this Alan um, I think what my job as a biographer is is to say let me show you what George Lucas's opinion was on this. Uh, let me show you how he was responding to this, and of course, he thinks they're great. Um, but you know, let me let me try to get out of the way, and let me you know lay out how this happened and what's going on and why he's doing it. And you can still decide for yourself if you think they suck or if you think they're still awesome after reading this. But what I try to do is give you that information and and give you keep it Lucas centric, not Brian centric, because I'm boring. So keep it Lucas centric, and then you can decide you know what you think about it after reading that.
0: Well, I'd hardly describe you as boring, but certainly you are not the subject of the book. So, therefore, <laughs> I understand you're removing yourself from it. And yeah, you do present a very, a very strongly Lucas-centric picture of things, as well as you know mixing in some of the the external reactions to thing as what well, uh, to the thing as well. So it's not entirely this. Oh gosh, how shall I put it? It's not such a rosy picture that it's entirely shot through the the eyes of george lucas it's actually given a lot of context as well and it's necessary too because of course his reactions to the public reaction to the phantom and to you know the prequels in general it informs the biography and informs how he you know continues to develop as a person over time yeah i mean per- that's a perfect example alan i mean because that's the one where you know he's
1: he, 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 again, like Washington Irving said, I never read my reviews and he read every word. Lucas is one of these guys who are like, look, I don't care what the critics think. I'm going to make the movie that I want to make. You know, and then once the fans on the Internet start, you know, start picking at him, he's pissed off again. So, right. you, you know, and it's like, well, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm going to stop reading the Internet. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get off the Internet altogether. But I think part of it for him as well is, you know, listening to us as fans. And Lucas's problem with Star Wars now, and it's a great problem to have, is we all kind of own it. Yep. You know, I mean, it's something we all feel we are entitled to have an opinion on. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, we all feel we own a bit of Star Wars. So we you know, so we almost feel like we have the right to give him our you're giving this to us. George, we have a right to give you our opinion on whether we think this is the way to go or not. Um, and that, I think, really grates on him because this is him fighting with Universal over cutting four minutes out of American graffiti just because they can't. I mean, I really think it's like his flashback to that sort of, you know, those days when he was still trying to wrest control away from the studios. And then here come the fans doing the same thing the studios were doing. George, why did you put this in? Why, where did you get the Midechlorians idea? That's a terrible idea. You know, I don't think he likes... I, I think having the fans do that is just like this, you know, huge, you know, post-apocalyptic flashback <laughs> to those days when, you know, the studios just would not leave him alone.
0: hmm Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. It's It's one of the challenges, I think, for pretty much any creative and even Dave Filoni who you know has overseen the clone wars and rebels has talked about how he just can't listen to fan commentary because it's just going to it, it it can't affect the way he tells the story. He has a vision for what the story is and he has to tell the vision that he has and listening to all this other feedback is just going to mess him up.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's somebody like Dave Filoni. I mean, like, art, look, artists can feel compelled to tell these great stories, and you know, get out of the get out of the way. That's another light fuse, and stand back. You know, let them let them let them tell it. Get out of the way.
0: Mm-hmm. So, why do you think there's been so much resistance to his vision over the years? You mean from the fans or from the studios or? Um, almost everyone it seems like there is you know a running theme where on the one hand you know control 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 and everything with Lucas has been about you know getting additional measures of control but he continues to encounter resistance to his vision at almost every step, even when, you know, the stuff that you added at the end that you had the luxury (laughs) of being able to include about the museum, and, you know, first it's not going to be in the Presidio, and then it's not going to be on the Chicago waterfront. There's just this continued resistance to him, somehow. And it's very strange. I mean, you would think at some point he would have clearly demonstrated that he earned his dues, and yet somehow there is a a visceral resistance as well. Yeah, he's got a museum he can't give away, basically, Yeah, um, you know, I think I think again, part of it
1: is again getting back to that whole thing about how he's created this mythology, this universe that we all feel uh, entitled to, that we all feel belongs to us, that we all feel we have a piece of, and so in a way that makes us feel like we get some say mm-hmm. over, uh, you know, how he lives and functions, both artistically, creatively, and, and oddly personally um so you know i so i think there's some of that into it and i and i do think that some of the pushback he was getting on the museum has to do with a lot of oh you know you're not so big that we still can't you know tell you what to do you know you're the four billion dollar man at that point Mm -hmm. um you know i'm not going to cast aspersions on the friends of the parks or anything like that but you know i mean i think there's a lot of personality conflict going on there as well apart from just policy conflict there's a lot of personality there as well um you know and and when you're when you're a guy who has done everything your way your entire life and have gambled everything constantly and succeeded you know I, I think i think that does you know I, I think that does make you a target sometimes for people who are like oh yeah well i'll show you yeah you sold your company for four billion you can't get you can't get uh, your land by by the lakefront of chicago so i think there may be a little bit of that but um you know what what i this, this is kind of subject, awesome, i guess but what i what i really love about the way this guy operates is He comes from this very conservative background, and he's so freaking charmingly reckless. Mm -hmm. You know, his dad's ready to hand him the family business. He tells his dad to go pound. You know that he's he's never gonna he's never gonna work in an office, and he's you know he's never gonna run a company, which he ends up doing. But uh, you know, is constantly wagering everything on himself. And it pays off almost every single time. I mean, I think that is staggering. And I think that's another thing, again, that sort of breeds resentment every once in a while from folks.
0: Yeah, he has an incredible track record. I mean, you know, yes, you can cast aspersions about the prequel trilogy all you want. You can complain about Tucker or Radioland murders or anything like that. But my goodness, I mean, is there a person alive who hasn't been touched by the Star Wars franchise in one way or another?
1: Right, I mean, and how I mean, can you name any other movie where if you ask somebody to name ten characters from it, they can? Yeah, um, I mean, you name Star Wars, and like, I mean, you don't even have to go very deep. To already have ten, you know, big players. Everybody
0: knows. Yeah, I think I would have trouble doing that, even with the Raiders of the Lost Ark, <laughs> right, and maybe exactly, the Jones franchise. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to do. Okay, maybe Harry Potter. Maybe. Right. right exactly. But, but that's, you know, you don't you don't have to pull out me and Numb. I mean, you can just keep going right down the
1: list of the big hitters that people are
0: going to be like, oh right, oh right, oh right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, did you? have any sort of um, preconceived notions about lucas that ended up getting blown away by the work that you did
1: you know i I didn't really because i didn't know a lot about him apart from really what was on the screen and Mm. from you know some interviews i'd read and and uh you know reading the making of star wars and those books um so, so no, I can't really say there was anything that I, that I thought I knew that was, you know, dashed against the rocks or anything that, you know, I went, oh, my, my goodness. Uh, I, I think it just confirmed more than anything in all sorts of different ways, but I think it really confirmed sort of, you know, what you intuit about him, which is to be able to do all these things that you're doing, you need to have sort of a will of steel uh, and be stubborn as hell. And really want to be, you know, and really be, and I use this term affectionately, and be a control freak. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, is what really came out to play in in the book, and what really affirmed, I guess, what I sort of suspected all along is that to be able to do all these things you do, um, you know, it takes a very particular kind of person, a very kind of you know specific kind of person, a guy who's not necessarily worried. You know, the thing about Jim Henson is Jim loved when he worked, you know, to be with the guys and, you know, everybody he worked with was his friend and everybody loved to get along and make each other laugh. Lucas, Lucas doesn't come to play. Lucas Mm -hmm. comes to work. Yep. Um, you know, and he comes to, and so if you don't like it, well, you know, T.S. You know he doesn't have any problem saying that, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Jim did. So I mean, it takes a very specific type, a very specific personality to do that, which he's able to do. I mean, he's almost able to compartmentalize uh, to an extent where he comes in and it's it's going to be. You know, I love the bit about the Queen's rules they impose in at, Inside Skywalker, which is do not talk to George, do not look George in the eye. <laughs> you know, yeah. only speak when only speak when spoken to. So don't
0: chat him up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah don't chat him up. Exactly. So you know, you talked about how. When you take on a project like this, you end up, you know, it's almost the equivalent of living with a person, but. Uh, in some ways, in this particular respect, you're also <laughs> living with somebody who, from whom you're estranged in a way because Lucas yeah. would not participate in the project. And you right. told this story on Coffee with Kenobi, and for our listeners, I will link to the interview with Brian on Coffee with Kenobi because it is awesome as well. Um, and I would certainly appreciate it if you'd tell our listeners as well um, the story of the letter that arrived about the Jim Henson biography and how it led to you asking for Lucas's participation in this project.
1: Yeah, no, I had, uh, I've still never seen this letter to my great dismay, but but after, um, after the Jim Henson biography came out, my editor at Random House received a note from George Lucas, who said, I knew Jim and Jim was a friend of mine. And he said that he really liked the biography, which was very flattering. And so I thought, Oh God, you know, this is, uh, maybe this is Brer Rabbit. Don't throw me in the briar patch. He's dying to be done. Yeah so i uh, I wrote him a, a letter and I talked with my editor about this as well and I, I wrote him a letter that I nursed for quite some time before I sent it off <laughs> and I sent it to his personal assistant Skywalker and um, sat you know waited and waited and waited and about three weeks later uh, I got a word back that he was not going to participate he, you know I'm very, I'm a very very private guy uh, and you know especially after the 1983 book of Dale Pollux um, he's just not inclined to participate in those kind of things uh, didn't say good luck or anything i just said no thanks Uh, And so, you know, that I I went to bed for a week after that. Oh, what am I going to do? But the more I looked into it and the more I read and the more I sort of gathered stuff about me, that was when I came to that moment. You and I discussed a little earlier where I realized it's a much stronger, much more dramatic book um, using, you know, the here and now. Quotes, the here and now conversations, the here and now interviews that it, that, it had, that he had done, you know, back in the day before you know what's happening. Uh, so, so it, it the other thing that that happened as a result of that is um, I my publisher for Jim Henson was Random House. They published all the Star Wars books, and because I wasn't going to be moving on. This project without his consent, I had to change publishers.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, so uh, so we just you know we put it out for you know I, I had a, a pretty strong proposal. It was one of those proposals I told somebody it was the first time I really felt like I knew what I was doing. I had this ninety page proposal, ah. um, and when not I, I mean we sold it in a day. And uh, you know, and my editor is a is a great fan of Star Wars, and I love the Jim Henson book, but it, and it was a great fit. But that's one of the reasons I, you know, we ended up over at Little Brown is because Random House just said, you know, we love you, but, uh, but we're the publishers of the Star Wars books, so we have a little bit of a problem. Um, so that's, you know, but that, that was sort of the, the, the birth of the project and, and you know, launch, launching it with a different publisher and, and just going, going on ahead, um, you know, with Ungood Ship Lucas on board.
0: Well, if anybody from Random House is listening, um, please pass on the word that a wonderful Christmas present for Brian would be to have that letter framed <laughs> and sent to him immediately. Oh gosh, I don't know how. <laughs> I don't know how you don't stop everything and and go acquire that letter immediately. Uh, I would. I would. i like I haven't even seen it. My editor just told me about it. I would love to actually see it. Oh goodness. But that's really fascinating that they, they said, nope, can't be with Random House, and that they, they let you go is, is actually a testament to the project as well. I mean, that must have been very difficult. They must have known at Random House that this book was going to be something remarkable, and I'm sure this is one that they're wringing their hands over going, oh, gosh, I wish we could have had that one.
1: Well, you know they've got
0: they've got Lucasfilm,
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Lucasfilm. So they're they're doing fine. They get the Star Wars novels; they're fine. Oh yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. Okay, we're gonna pause there, and yes, spoiler alert: the second half of the conversation is coming tomorrow. But for now, that is gonna do it for today's episode of the show. And it just remains for me to say thank you so much for joining me for it as always, and may the force be with you wherever in the world you may be.